Let's now turn to the Gospel of John. We'll read from chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. We'll read the end of the chapter. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In connection with our scripture uh, reading, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31. And we're going to read question and answers uh, 83 and 84. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, keys are very powerful and important things. And uh, sometimes uh, you may have experienced the kind of panic uh, when you can't find your keys. Maybe you're traveling and uh, you misplace them and you fear that you've lost them. And if that's the case, you're stuck. You're, you're stranded. Uh, unless you have an extra pair somewhere. I've had that experience numerous times or even losing keys to, uh, uh, parts of my bike where I need to get to my gear and I'm afraid that I lost a key and I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. So keys are very important to unlock things, uh, unlock doors 
without keys, we can't get into our homes. And maybe you've locked yourself out before and had to call a locksmith. And uh, sometimes to have a key or not can be very, very serious. It can be a matter of life and death. If a key is necessary to open a door or to escape a building that's on fire, or to get into a building to save someone whose life is in danger, well, you can imagine how important it is to have a key to open a door. Sometimes, in fact, that's what we're considering tonight. There's a kind of key that's uh, a matter of eternal life and death. The Bible uses the language of keys to describe a spiritual power to open or shut the doors of heaven or hell. And that's the power of Christ. In Revelation 1, verse 18, the Lord Jesus, in his introduction to all the letters uh, to the different churches, identifies himself as the one who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And this is uh, from the book of Revelation. And you know that uh, this is long after Jesus told uh, his disciples, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that means that in giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven uh, to uh, the apostles and uh, in, in, to the church, he did not give them up. They're still in his possession. And this power of, of uh, opening and closing heaven is present and active on earth today because the risen Christ is working in this world. He's working in this church today. In fact, everywhere the gospel is proclaimed and preached, there is the exercise of these powerful keys in a matter of eternal life and death. Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ in person standing at the doorway, and as you file out, he has one of two words to say directly to or about each one of you as you pass by him. And those words are forgiven, 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 unforgiven, forgiven, unforgiven. Imagine that happening. Imagine what a solemn uh, thing that would be to hear such words from the Lord Jesus concerning us personally. Pretty vivid, huh? It's like a preview of the final judgment. But this picture that I've described with words really describes a spiritual reality because it says something about the momentous importance of what transpires, uh, what transpires in this room every Sunday, every service, everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. Eternal destinies are being uh, decided. That's how we are to understand this first key of the kingdom that we're looking at uh, this evening. The key of preaching, gospel preaching, opens and shuts or opens and closes the kingdom of heaven. That's our theme that we're considering from the scriptures as summarized here before us. We want to begin by considering the nature of that uh, that power. Well, actually, all the points concern that great theme, but we want to look specifically, first of all, to what uh, is properly called the declarative power of gospel preaching. Jesus 
did not give the apostles actual power to forgive sins. You know, when we read uh, verse 23, it kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? Where Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, in the gospel uh, uh, recorded in the gospel of Mark, we have this instance where Jesus, uh, he healed the paralytic that was uh, lower down through the roof of a house. But before he healed him, you remember what he said to him, son, your sins are forgiven you. And those who stood by, they murmured among themselves, this man blasphemes. Who has power to forgive sin? Who can forgive God but God only? And yes, that is true. But the Son of Man, who is also God, has power on earth to forgive sins, to declare it with a kind of authority of truth that indeed addresses the actual condition of those of whom he speaks. But Jesus gives no command or authority to apostles for a kind of priestly absolution of sins. We have no instance of of the apostles uh, exercising the kind of authority or speaking the kinds of words that our Savior spoke in Mark chapter 2. Rather, what we have is apostles who proclaimed forgiveness of sins through Christ. Again, listen how... Listen to how the catechism describes the exercise of this key. The kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring. Declaring, that's an official announcement to all believers. Each and every one that as often as they accept the promise, the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. That's what we hear in in Paul's gospel preaching in Acts chapter 13. He proclaimed the word of salvation. And we can see different uh, characteristics of that proclamation. For one thing, first of all, he proclaimed how sins are forgiven. And that is through the coming of the promised Christ. Through who he is and, and what he has done through his death through his burial and resurrection, according to the scriptures. In verse 32, uh, we read, and we, now it's Paul who is speaking, but we, he's speaking as a minister of the gospel with such a commission to make this declaration, and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children and that he raised up Jesus. So gospel proclamation is a proclamation of how sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, through his saving work. And secondly, it's a proclamation of how forgiveness is received. By him, we read in verse 39, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It's through faith. It's through faith alone that sinners are justified in the sight of God through what Christ has done. And in that connection, there is also the proclamation of this assurance of forgiveness through Christ. 
Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Yes, there is a certain assurance of pardon to all who believe. And then fourthly, moving on very briefly with regard to these heads at this point, Gospel preaching also proclaims the consequences of failing to believe. And we hear that also in verse 41. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. That's the consequence of unbelief. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe. There are those who will not believe this message, though one were to declare it to you. That message was declared to them. And Paul warns them, lest they be among those who hear such a message and yet perish because they do not believe it. We might say that gospel preaching also then clarifies the terms of forgiveness or not. It doesn't simply announce a kind of blanket assurance of forgiveness without, without spelling out those conditions. And of course the conditions first of all, are met by Christ. You know, there are those who would teach a kind of unconditional love and forgiveness of God that really bypasses the necessary condition upon which God pardons sin. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ met those conditions on God's part by suffering the penalty and condemnation of sin for all those who have put their trust in him. But secondly, in order to receive forgiveness, there must be genuine repentance and faith. And only upon this uh, this condition, and again, we know that faith itself is the gift of God and it's not a work that somehow merits forgiveness, but it's necessary when God brings people unto himself and bestows forgiveness upon them. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, it's a necessary condition. In fact, uh, it, it involves this idea of if. Remember uh, Philip's word to the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch when he requested baptism. And baptism was what? It's a, it's a sign and it, and it gives assurance and confirms the forgiveness of sins. And, and Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, he didn't simply say, well, yes, judging by your response, I know that you're among the elect and your sins are forgiven. And certainly, now, in a judgment of charity, certainly uh, that is the response of, uh, of Christians and gospel ministers to those who give indication of believing the, the message of the gospel. But ultimately, there are matters of the heart going on, which are known to God. And in the assurance of the forgiveness of sins and in the proclamation of that message, in a sense, there is uh, this kind of conditional language that the Scriptures is often careful to guard and protect. No gospel preacher has the authority to forgive sins because, well, I'm convinced that you're sincere. Or I assure you that your sins are forgiven because um, the elders judge you... Uh, Worthy to come to the Lord's table or because you're a member of the church. Now again, that does not mean that uh, ministers or Christians look at one another with suspicion. 
But we recognize that the assurance of forgiveness is not some priestly activity on the part of ministers. It's declarative on the basis of Christ's work and upon condition of receiving that in true faith. Remember that uh, uh, the proclamation of the gospel also is proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them. In other words, the assumption is that there often are, sadly, those even among the assembly of God's people who themselves are not true believers. And though they may appear to be, but the message of the gospel reaches them with the assurance that upon repentance and faith their sins are indeed forgiven, but also with a warning that so long as they do not repent, they remain unforgiven. Gospel preaching also proclaims the cause of unforgiveness. And here we're not afraid to use that cause, the word cause, in a way that we wouldn't use it with respect to the, the grounds of forgiveness. Because the cause of unforgiveness is not some unwillingness of God to forgive sinners who come to him. The cause of unforgiveness is not that some are just too great of sinners. The cause of unforgiveness is that they may struggle with doubts and uncertainties about their forgiveness. No, the cause of unforgiveness is the unbelief of a hardened heart. And so, gospel preaching opens and closes the kingdom by this declarative power of gospel preaching. And secondly, we want to consider that that declaration carries divine authority with it, the authoritative power of gospel preaching. In John chapter 20, we read uh, the words of our Lord to his apostles when he said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Those are remarkable words. Christ was a sent one from the Father. And apostles are sent ones that bears a very similar character. Though, of course, there is an utter, absolute uniqueness to Christ's sending as the Savior. Yet the apostles are sent also with authority, with, with a divine commission. Jesus had spoken of that uh, earlier in uh, his high priestly prayer in chapter chapter 17, where he said, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, this would be apostles. It's important to know they had a special role from Christ. In chapter 16, for example, we read in verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And I don't want to deny that there is... Uh, 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 an indirect and a very precious significance to these words as it applies to Christians. But uh, we have to see that they first apply to these apostles who were assured that after Jesus' departure, 
Christ through his spirit would lead them into all truth and thus equip them for the foundational role that they had as apostles. Because by this infallible and authoritative revelation that they would receive, they established the content of the gospel message for the whole Christian church everywhere and for all time. That's what Paul means when he says that the church is built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, likely referring to New Testament prophets who were given infallible revelation at that time for the establishment of the Christian church. They had a unique role. The church isn't built upon them personally, but it's built upon their apostolic testimony, which they received infallibly from Christ. The church is holy. The church is Catholic. That is, it is universal. It is also apostolic. That's one of the historic descriptions of the Christian church because it is based upon the authoritative apostolic teaching that was communicated from Christ through his spirit in a unique way to those apostles. And yet their authority, as I said, was not personal but ministerial. They represented Christ and they declared the word of the gospel with, with official authority. We, we heard it this morning from Second Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 5. On God's behalf, we implore you. On behalf of Christ, in God's place, in, in fact, be reconciled to God. Matthew 10, verse uh, 40, says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In fact, in John 13, uh, there is also this uh, expanded statement by our Lord. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Whomever I send. And while that had unique significance for the apostles, it's not restricted to that. Because the exalted Christ still sends ambassadors, heralds, gospel ministers to preach. He, the exalted Christ, gave some apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for that ongoing work of the ministry. I mentioned this morning from Ephesians 2 that Christ himself preached peace to the Ephesians that message of peace that he proclaimed to his apostles after his resurrection. Peace with God. Now, Jesus never came personally, literally, to Ephesus, but Christ came through the ministry of the gospel there and preached peace to them. And this continues today, brothers and sisters. In Romans 10, chapter... Uh, or verses 13 and 15, we have this classic description of the relationship between faith and gospel preaching. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him uh, whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And that involves this matter of commissioning, ultimately by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but said through the church by way of recognizing Christ's gifts and by way of ordination, there is this ongoing official proclamation of the gospel that continues today. Another important detail of John chapter 20 is that uh, Jesus breathed on his disciples. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that uh, equipped them for their mission. By that same Spirit of Christ, Christ's power and presence remain with the church to the end of the age, as he promised. It's the Holy Spirit that enables this gospel ministry to carry on. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that that through that gospel ministry, indeed, the Spirit yet takes the things of Christ and makes them effectively known to the hearts of God's people. It's the Spirit who convicts of sin and of righteousness and judgment through Christ and His finished work. And that's the ongoing power whereby gospel preaching also is made effective. But it means that true gospel preaching indeed is with God's authority and with God's present and active power. And that leads us thirdly to consider the effective power of gospel preaching. And speaking generally, we have to admit that the effects of gospel preaching are hard to calculate, aren't they? I mean, especially as far as the impact of a sermon on us, such a great diversity, as many differences perhaps as there are individuals among us. And some might really be helped by a sermon in a specific issue of their lives. I've I've heard accounts of people getting clarity about a a, a certain important thing that they're facing through through a sermon that didn't even necessarily direct that specifically. Or we might gain a better understanding of things that we didn't really appreciate before. Sometimes we lead with questions. Sometimes preaching uh, leaves us uncertain and uh, leaving us with difficulties. Sometimes the minister's hard to follow. Sometimes he seems to be in bad form. Sometimes we might be troubled by a sermon, confused a bit. Sometimes we're distracted and find it hard to pay attention. Often a sermon is unremarkable, rather ordinary. And then we remember, yes, it's by the ordinary means of grace that God builds us up and strengthens us and even brings people to faith, sometimes by the most unlikely sermons and preachers. So in terms of the effects of a sermon or preaching in general, they are so different than many. And we recognize also the sovereignty of God and the way he works through the minister and the way he works through his word. That's why we always pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination and his working through the word. It's not a a static kind of predictable thing. There's the sovereignty of God and the way and the measure by which he blesses gospel preaching. And the effect of, of a sermon or gospel preaching is not always clearly felt or, or even known at the time. But here it's also important to remember that the effect of gospel preaching is not first a matter of our emotions or our experience or even our evaluation. Gospel preaching meets us 
and it meets us in our actual spiritual condition. And that means in terms of the big picture, the basic most important issues, it meets us. It meets our unbelieving or it meets our believing hearts. It meets those who have received and are receiving the good tidings of Christ or not. And by our response to the gospel testimony, a judgment indeed is rendered. That same judgment that I mentioned at the beginning, forgiven or unforgiven. Because gospel preaching meets us, and you might say leaves us, in one of those two conditions. And people themselves, they may be unclear about it, right? People may be uncertain about where they stand. People may be deceived about it. People may be indifferent about it, actually. Apathetic. But it's a matter of divine witness. It's a, it's a matter of fact that doesn't even depend upon an awakened conscience or not. Whether one feels in their own conscience this verdict, this judgment that is made through preaching, that's not the point. The fact is that it is in fact made. It's a divine witness. It's the divine witness that's described in John chapter, chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's not a matter of their own personal conviction and realization. They may be utterly insensitive to it, utterly apathetic and careless and unbelieving that very verdict itself. That doesn't change it. It's a divine testimony. The testimony of the gospel brings us all before the verdict of God. Isn't that what our catechism says? Where it says God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Forgiven, unforgiven, in terms of the broadest categories. And that means, brothers and sisters, that our imaginary scene at the beginning of uh, this message depicts a solemn truth. That imaginary scene of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking one of these words to each one of us as we would pass by him. And it certainly ought to confront us all with that most important question. Do we... Do we know that verdict of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, there are two precious words, two precious phrases also in the answer 84. And, and the first one is the words, as often, as often. It says, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, and as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith. God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. You see, those words would describe one who for the very first time, actually, receives the forgiveness of sin. As they, for the very first time, actually are gripped with the wonder and the truth of this simple message. That by believing in this Savior, by receiving Him in our emptiness, in our sin, in our guilt, 
in our inability to save ourselves, God, for the sake of his Son, pardons the sins of all who look to the Savior and believe that he is the Son of God. Oh, they may not have the full rejoicing of assurance, but as they call upon the name of the Lord, the certain verdict of heaven is sins forgiven. And that should also comfort the doubtful. The doubtful who yet know that their heart goes out to Christ with longings and desires and the conviction that indeed he is the Lord and Savior. And in resorting to him and calling upon him, they may be comforted. That as often, as as often as they believe, their sins are forgiven. It should encourage the backslider. should give peace and joy to every believer. That as often as we hear this gospel message, and we hear it in different ways in our worship, don't we? We, we hear it in the, the songs we sing, and uh, we hear it in the prayers, as we together we, we come to God through Jesus Christ, and we hear it in the preaching. And as often as we're, we're receiving this gospel message in faith and feeding on it, we are assured of the forgiveness of sins. So that's the first precious phrase. And there's another one. And that's uh, the words, as long as. And this is with reference to that, that verdict of unforgiven. Proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation remains on them. As long as. That means it doesn't have to stay that way. It means that things could change. Yes, as long as they remain in unbelief, the wrath of God remains upon them. But that could change. Could change now. Could change today. This evening. The door which is shut to unbelief opens to repentance and faith. And so in gospel proclamation, it's not simply a description of Christ. It's not simply a, a, a description of, uh, of faith. And it's not simply a warning of judgment, but it is an appeal. It is an invitation. It is a summons. We heard this morning, be reconciled to God. If you're not yet at peace with him, the message resounds in the gospel message. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That's justification. That's full acceptance. That's forgiveness. Amen.